Welcome listeners to Senior Care Above and Beyond. We are so glad you are here with us today. Hope you enjoy the show. We have lots to talk about. Welcome to episode two of Senior Care Above and Beyond. Today, we are going to discuss Alzheimer's disease and its effects on people in this country. It is estimated that one out of every six women and one out of every 10 men living past the age of 55 will develop dementia. There are various forms of dementia. 70% of cases are due to Alzheimer's. This is the focus of our podcast today. And with me today is my business partner, Carol Hershey, who is also the executive director of SCP. And our esteemed vice president is back, Lauren Turi. Good to have you guys with me today. Right now, 5.8 million people are living with the disease. By 2050, it is projected the number will increase to 14 million. It is the sixth leading cause of death in the United States. Between 2000 and 2017, deaths from heart disease decreased by 9%, while deaths from Alzheimer's increased by 145%. That's significant. These numbers were retrieved on the Alzheimer's Association website. Today, we will explore a case example of how an older adult's diagnosis of Alzheimer's affects the entire family and how care for the individual diagnosed changed as the disease worsened. We will then explore the fears by many families about the cost of dementia care in nursing facilities. Specifically, we'll discuss medical assistance. Should the family have no choice but to admit their loved one into a facility? One of the biggest fears we hear is we will lose our house due to medical assistance and Medicaid. So, Carol, let's begin with you. You've been in the field for over 30 years, and I know that you have worked with hundreds, I could go into the thousands probably, of families who are affected by Alzheimer's. So I really appreciate you bringing a case example to the podcast today. Here you go. Thank you very much. Yes, as Sue indicated with the stats she just gave, Alzheimer's and dementia and other types of dementia, it's a debilitating illness. It's just awful. There's no sugarcoating it, no easy way, no glossing over the sad details. It is a progressive disease. And a lot of times the beginning stages of the disease are not very noticeable. Families might not know for the first year or two that mom or dad is slipping. They don't know the signs or they might just attribute it to old age, that sort of thing. So today I'm going to talk about one of our former clients. I'm going to use the name Anne since we don't use real names in our podcasts of our clients. And Anne came to us by way of her daughter who had started started to notice some things, signs with mom, and she wasn't sure how to handle it. Things like mom always kept a neat house, her house was immaculate, and things were kind of starting to get dusty, not organized, things laying around, mail piling up. She was always a good cook, and it didn't seem like she was cooking as much anymore. And she noticed her parents were arguing more, which, you know, couples always have their little bickering things, fighting or just nitpicking at each other, especially after 50 years of marriage. But she felt like her dad was getting more stressed out, not able to cope with it or know how to handle the confrontations with Anne. So the daughter had come to us and said, you know, I think mom's having some problems. Can you do an assessment? That's the first step in care management is an assessment. And then we have this with families a lot because they don't like mom to know what's going on or she's alert oriented. She says, 
can you do the assessment without her knowing you're doing an assessment? Which is tricky, but we try to do it. But at some point, we have to address the elephant in the room and say, we're going to test you for memory, that sort of thing. So the daughter was in that area where she was what's known as the sandwich generation, 40 years old. She has teens, preteens, and busy with her life and work and her kids, but also attending to her parents and wanting to take care of her parents. So she had asked us to do an evaluation which we do. And we want to include the husband. The husband's name is Joe and the daughter, but I had to give her instruction ahead of time not to answer for mom. You know, the tendency is for, especially for spouses, but also for kids to answer questions that maybe mom is going to struggle with or doesn't know the answer to, or if she's getting noticeably upset because she can't answer the question. So I had to warn Joe and the daughter not to answer for mom. And then afterwards, I would talk to them and find out, was she accurate? Was she not accurate? Was she making stuff up? So part of the assessment process is conversation. So without having to do the clipboard and the doctor and the computer in front of her, just what's a day in the life of Anne like? What do you do in the morning when you get up? Do you make coffee? Do you make breakfast? Do you take your medications? What do you have for lunch and dinner? And what are your medications? Sometimes people aren't able to remember if they take meds or what their medications are or what they're for. So what are your medications? And then again, throughout the day, are you driving? Who's your doctor? Those sorts of things. And at some point, maybe halfway through the assessment, I ask Anne, how do you think your memory is? And she was you know, she hesitated and she said, well, I don't remember as much as I used to. I know I forget some things, but I just think that's old age, just attributed it to old age. But she was willing to admit that she recognized that she was forgetting some things. So I asked her if it was okay if, you know, I tested her memory and she agreed. And we use, there's different tests clinicians use and doctors use. What we've always used is what's called the Falstein mini mental exam. Can you spell that? Falstein is F. F is in Frank, O-L-S-T-E-I-N. You can Google it. I think you can print it out. It even gives you instructions. But usually I think it's best done by somebody who is a clinician, a social worker, psychologist, doctor, who's had training on it. And the first five to 10 questions are pretty basic. What's your date of birth? What's your address? What's the town, county, and state that you live in? What's your phone number? Sometimes seniors are good at remembering their date of birth, but they can't compute the numbers to their age. They'll say, I was born in 1930, but I'm 75 years old. When they'd be, what's that, 89 years old, you know, so they can't compute the numbers. So the first 10 or so questions are pretty simple. Then it gets into numbers, writing a sentence, following instructions. So again, 30 points. And if somebody scores perfect, obviously we think, well, maybe there's something else going on. Maybe it's not cognition. Maybe it's something else. But in her case, she got a few wrong. I would say she was in the 25 range, which indicates maybe some the early stages or beginning stages of cognitive impairment or some sort of dementia. And then there were other things where she was kind of withdrawing from activities. She had stopped going to one of her church groups because somebody said something offensive or something like that. Again, the relationship with her husband where they were there was more bickering. And I find spouses have a harder time dealing with dementia with their loved one because their peers, they don't want to see their spouse slipping and they don't know how to handle it. I mean, you know, for dementia is like a dirty word for an old person, for seniors. I mean, it's like the biggest fear. You hear seniors saying, I still have my mind. You know, they might have heart failure, 
diabetes, stroke, but am I, I'm sharp as a tack. I haven't lost my mind. Or they'll talk about somebody. Loss of control that right. people fear. You know, losing that control of hanging on to that memory has got to be so frightening. Yeah, it's very scary. I mean, imagine we joke about, like, walk into the kitchen and forgot what I walk in there for. But for a senior, like, they might forget something basic, like what's a pen or their grandchild's name or things that they did on a routine and they forget a very basic thing. So imagine how scary that is. Mm. And, And they know, having seen their peers or their friends or their their own parents or loved ones suffer through dementia and Alzheimer's. They know what's kind of in it for the long haul. So it's a very big fear for seniors. So at the end of the assessment, usually we try to make recommendations. Sometimes we do that in written form. Sometimes we do it right then and there to say to the family, these are the steps I think we should start to talk about. And in Anne's case, I suggested that they get additional testing. Ours is a preliminary assessment, and it was obvious there were some beginning signs of cognitive impairment. But sometimes a full medical workup and actual neuropsych or Alzheimer's type testing could rule out something that may be causing it. It could be nutrition. It could be a medication causing the confusion. It could be a brain tumor or UTI. Yes. UTI causes confusion in seniors. So Alzheimer's can't be 100% diagnosed without an autopsy, but they can rule out everything else and narrow it down to what they will call Alzheimer's type dementia. So that was my first recommendation that they meet with her primary physician and get a referral for additional testing. And then from that testing, determine what the diagnosis is. The second recommendation I made to them in this case was education because Joe, Ann's husband, was struggling with it and how to, an obvious thing is like correcting somebody whose memory is failing. Well, don't you remember we did this or no, you're not doing it the right way. Or I told you this once before, the tendency to want to correct them. When I feel like it also tests the patience of the partner that does not suffer from Alzheimer's, the patience of repetitive questioning, mm-hmm. constant forgetfulness. And it's fear-driven from the caregiver because they know they're slowly losing their loved one. But it's also, it's just so frustrating for them to also repeat, repeat. So it's great that you're mentioning the education part and the Alzheimer's Association for one, that's a great resource. I think the um, support groups for the spouse and children, support groups are wonderful. Yeah. And you're absolutely right. Imagine being with somebody 24 seven and in the course of a day, they ask you 20 times, what are we doing tonight? What are we going to do tonight? Who's coming over tonight? Where are we going tonight? You know, that sort of thing. Cause they know there's something planned, but they can't remember what. Yeah. So yes, patience, especially for the spouse is a big deal. And what's the book that you were both talking about yesterday? Oh, the 36 hour day. The 36 hour. Okay. Yes. There's lots of education material available by the Alzheimer's association. There are some books out there written by caregivers, some even written by people who were diagnosed and in the early stages. At the end of the podcast, I want to mention a, a writer for the Philadelphia Inquirer and his approach to it when he was diagnosed, Some his funny, what he called Alzheimer's disease. So I'm going to mention that. So yes, educating the family is big. And that's from the spouse to the kids, to even the grandkids to try and keep grandma intellectually stimulated, whether it's playing games 
or reading books to them, that sort of thing, or ways to keep them engaged because the tendency is for a senior who knows they are having some difficulty focusing, difficulty maybe depression comes with the dementia or the memory loss and the difficulty remembering things. It's very important to keep engaged. So the education was the second thing we recommended. And then what support services were needed at that point. The family was very involved and engaged, but they also worked and had full-time jobs. So the biggest thing was to give Joe, the husband, some relief, either have somebody come and stay with Ian when needed so that he could go out and do his own thing or to take her out just because she wasn't cooking as much. One of the things that um, we talk about with dementia is executive functioning, and I'll talk about that in a minute, but helping her cook some meals, helping her do some cleaning a few days a week. So we just started out with some light services a couple hours a day, three days a week. And usually when I'm in these planning stages with families, we talk about they can have help anywhere from two hours a day to 24 hours a day. And so as the disease progresses and as she needs more help, we add services. And at some point, we talk about adult daycare. And we did get to that with Ann. But they did go for additional testing. One of the things that our testing doesn't include in the assessment is testing for executive functioning. And so a neuropsych test gives a lot of different type tests. Things included in executive functioning is like trouble controlling emotions. So if she was getting more tearful or getting angry with her husband, that's one of the early signs. With a dementia, problems starting, organizing, and completing tasks short-term memory issues, inability to multitask, and socially inappropriate behavior. The daughter had suspected that that group that she stopped attending was because Anne had said something or somebody said something to her about her not remembering a key issue and it offended her. And so she just, that's a big sign. She withdrew. Instead of having people find out that she was having memory problems, she just stopped going altogether. You feel so vulnerable in those situations. Right. right. So that's what they were going to get additional testing. So initially it was just having somebody come in a few hours a day, a few days a week. Then I'm going to fast forward as her disease progressed and she was needing more help. We talked to them, Joe and Ann and the family about adult daycare. And she did start attending adult daycare. It's just like a child daycare, but it's geared towards seniors with dementia. They have entertainment. They have word games, music, mental stimulation, trivia. Seniors are great at trivia. They can remember. You've heard, I'm sure, about short-term memory and long-term memory. They might not remember what they had for lunch, but they'll remember like a movie from 50 years ago and be able to quote scenes from the movie. So my mom in jeopardy, forget it. Right. (laughs) Exactly. She started going to the adult day program and it takes an adjustment because the first thing is like, oh, I don't want to be around all those old people. You know, seniors always have that. I'm not old. I don't belong here. But she did adapt. We got her in, I think, early on. So she enjoyed it, enjoyed the entertainment, enjoyed the different activities. They even have like a quiet room if somebody gets agitated because of overstimulation or a lot of noise, they could go into and recline in a chair and listen to music or take a nap. So she really liked that and eventually progressed to five days a week. And that way, Joe could have his break and his relief. He could go to a ball game or do things with his kids and grandkids and not be too overwhelmed. And it helps because she stimulated and acted during the day. Then she would sleep through the night. One of the things with dementia patients is a lot of times they're up during the night. They want to wander. They might, if they're home and bored and nap during the day, then they're awake during the night when the caregiver's trying to sleep. So the day program helped her to be able to sleep at night. So then again, I'm going to fast forward. So she went to the adult day program and then gradually, and this is the very sad part of dementia and Alzheimer's is that it progresses to such a point where 
they lose all function, ability to walk, ability to eat, speak, incontinence of bowel and bladder, and need total care. And it eventually did get to that point with Anne where she was home, getting a lot of help at home with in-home services and no longer able to go to the day program. And we eventually had to have the conversation with Joe and the family about did it make sense at this point to discuss nursing home? Yeah, that's because a tough it's a very tough conversation because one of the things that families fear the most, first thing they think of is I'm going to lose my home, as you yeah. mentioned at the beginning. Yeah. And financial, what's the cost financial for a nursing home? And is Joe going to have to lose his house and lose his assets and lose all his money for right. nursing home? But after explaining to them, and Lauren's going to talk more about the Medicaid issue, they were agreeable to nursing home and we helped them find a nursing home that was close that all the family could still visit and that accept medical assistance. And, you know, it just gets to a point where you can't provide that total care, even with a hospital bed, even with 24 hour care, it's Joe's was getting stressed out. It was affecting his health. And Anne really, unfortunately, didn't know where she was anymore, didn't recognize her family. And so they did eventually all agree that nursing home was the next step. And that's where the Medicaid issue comes in. And Lauren's going to talk more about that. Thank you, Carol. Early on in my career, I went to a court hearing and I'll never forget the judge. There was a family member there when the judge was trying to explain to the family member how he was going to appoint an agency as the guardian over the family member. And the reason being was because the medical assistance application was a beast. That is how he, he referred wow. to it. Yeah. And I, I remember the son seemed relieved. Yeah. And I think at the time that really resonated with me because, you know, I was young, I was out of school, I started working at SCP, and I just completed medical assistance applications. Yeah. And I always thought of helping people as the clinical piece of my job. Yeah. And that it was really significant yeah. because that was at that moment that I realized, wow, the work that we do on the financial end with the medical assistance is really important. That's great point. So that's something when I talk to family members, they seem overwhelmed or they're upset, yeah. frustrated. I always refer to that. And I tell them the story how this judge one time referred to it as a beast. And I, I couldn't think of a better definition myself. And I, and I just want to add, because we all do this. And just for people who don't know, we use Medicaid and medical assistance interchangeably. It's the same thing. We're all used to the lingo. But for somebody who doesn't know Medicaid, medical assistance, MA, you'll hear us say all three. That's It's all the same program. Just follow that MA medical assistance. But I'm going to sort of refer back to Ann and Joe, who Carol had referenced. So the questions I typically get are, and a question that Joe, if he was admitting his wife Ann into a nursing home as her dementia progressed and he couldn't take care of her any longer at home, Joe would call me up and Probably the first questions he would ask me is, am I going to lose my house? Am I going to lose my income? What's going to happen to my assets? So what I would tell Joe is, I would say, Joe, first off, you're not going to lose your house. Your house is okay. And all the contents in your house are okay. And Joe exhaled. I'm yes, sure. always. And then we get into the income. And I would say, Joe, you're not going to lose your income. In fact, you may be eligible for some of Ann's income. So say Job gets $1,500 in social security benefits. And let's say Ann gets $2,000 in social security benefits as well. And then also gets a pension maybe from the city of Philadelphia, wherever, private pension. Right. So her income's about $3,000 a month. The minimum monthly maintenance needs allowance 
It's a That's tongue, a mouthful. Tongue twister. <laughs> it is a tongue twister. It's referred to as the MMMNA. Wow. The minimum allowance for that is $2,113.75. So because they're saying that's the minimum that Joe needs to make to survive in the community, and he only makes the $1,500 in Social Security, he's eligible for about $600 of Ann's income. So what would happen is if Ann's in a nursing home on Medicaid, $600 would go to Joe and the rest would be paid to the nursing home. I bet that's so surprising for everyone that you talk to about that. A lot of people hesitate. They don't want to provide me with their information right. because they're nervous that someone's going to take the community. So Joe's nervous that the nursing home is going to take some of his income sure. to pay for Ann's care. And it's really the opposite happens in most cases. Other exempt items that I want to mention are, along with the home and the income, are contents of the home. Any prepaid funeral arrangements, burial plots, one vehicle, Joe's 401k or IRA would be exempt, at least in Pennsylvania and in most states. And exempt means they're allowed to keep that. They can keep that. They will not go to the state in this big abyss. No, Medicaid is not going to come after them for those things. Those are exempt from... Anne can still qualify for Medicaid benefits. Sure. And Joe can keep all those things. So with that said, Joe's going to ask me, okay, well, I also have, we have checking accounts, savings accounts, maybe stocks, bonds, a second home down the shore. What's going to happen to those items? And the answer to that is it really depends. So again, the non-exempt items are checking accounts, savings accounts, CDs, stocks, bonds, things like that. All of those things, whether they're in Joe's name solely or in Joe and Ann's name, are considered to be a joint asset. So what this means is, in order for Ann to qualify for Medicaid, some of these assets may need to be spent down. That's why you said non-exempt for that category? Okay. So, so they count them. Yeah. Just like a, I worked with an attorney that we used to give presentations about Medicaid, and one of the things that she would say, think of it as divorce. When people are going through a divorce, they look at everything the couple owns, even as joint assets, as marital assets. So she would start off her presentation saying, what is mine is mine and what's yours is mine. So (laughs) it doesn't matter. You know, you have couples that had second marriages or brought an account to the marriage or piece of real estate or whatever to the marriage. It's all considered joint assets or marital assets when they're looking at what's countable, right? Correct. So What I would tell Joe from there is it's called the Community Spouse Resource Allowance. And the maximum amount that Joe would be able to keep of those joint assets is $126,420. Is that just for Pennsylvania or is that national? That's the federal maximum. Federal. But the states can, there's some wiggle room with the numbers. The states can sort of. states have different numbers for some requirements. For example. Okay. Even in Pennsylvania, different counties have different amounts for a burial account, right? What's allowable, Mm -hmm. like in our county, I think will allow like up to 12,500 in a burial account, which is untouchable. But then other counties allow up to like 16,000 or 20,000. Yeah, that's why it's a beast. That's why the whole thing is a beast. Yeah, exactly. Definitely. So let's say that Joe and Ann combine total assets of total non-exempt assets, say they have $75,000. Because that's under the $126,420, which is that maximum limit, Joe can keep that $75,000. Now, let's say that Joe and Ann jointly have $200,000. 
they're roughly going to have to spend down $74,000. And by spend down, they're going to have to pay those funds to mainly to the nursing home. They're going to have to spend it on medical care. Could the burial be a part of that spend down? Yes, it could be. You can set up burial arrangements, funeral arrangements, again, any of those. Even including a headstone. Even including a headstone, yes. You can use that for spend down. But basically that $74,000 is going to have to be spent down the spend down is going to have to meet the requirements of the Department of Human Services. In other words, you can't give it to your kids. No, can't give it to your kids. So Joe, if he has less than that that maximum limit, he might be happy. If he has more, right. he might be a little upset. Yeah. But if you have significant assets, there are ways that you can set up annuities to turn those non-exempt assets into <clears throat> exempt assets. That's where you meet with a medical assistance planner or an estate attorney, correct? Either one. So Joe would get to keep the house and the 126000 Joe would get to keep the house, 126000 And, and if he has not the shore house, no. Or his own retirement. Then That's all of his. He, okay. And he can keep a car and the contents of the home. Right. He can right. keep all of those so things. So it's not as scary as the people believe it is. Obviously, if it's somebody with a lot of assets, significant assets, say 500000 and he gets to keep the 126 and she lives in a nursing home for five years. He's spending down a lot of that 500000 So she yes. would be, and in that sense, would be private pay until right. that would take a few years to spend right. that down. Another thing that I, I really want to mention is actually two things. The first one is that- you a submarine. That should definitely be exempt. <laughs> The other thing I want to mention is that there is a five-year look-back period. So if you're going into the nursing home on March 1st, 2020, 60 months prior to that, you're going to have to provide verifications for every bank account that you have, stocks, tax returns, going back those five years. That's super important because I think a lot of people don't know that. And it's hard to plan when you're going to go into a nursing home as you're aging, I think it's good to be aware of that. So glad you said that because that is the big unknown. We plan and save for care at home, especially when you're in this field. Nursing homes do amazing, noble work, but most people want to stay in their own home. Sure. But then you just don't know if nursing home is part of the picture. So it's really... You can't even plan to say, I'm going to give my daughter $15,000. I don't think I will be in a nursing home in the next five years. You can't plan that. You're either going to, that daughter's either going to pay that back or she'll be able to keep it. It depends on the timing or you may never need a nursing home and it'll be a mute point. So it's just very interesting. That's That's the part of life we have no control over. But we just have to make our best guess for our situation. And I think that's why it's so good to be aware of it. And it sure is. I say this all the time. I feel like Medicaid is so important. And so many people, What I think Medicaid.gov said 71 million people are covered by Medicaid. Wow. Now, that's not just clients in nursing homes. That's CHIP, people with disabilities. But still, 71 million people are covered by Medicaid. So with that said, I mean, I feel like people in high school, kids in high school should be educated about this. You know, friends are calling me about grandparents who are getting to the point where they're getting ready to go into a nursing home. And it's like, okay, well, grandmom and grandpop gave, and we did touch on this a little bit, 
yesterday $1,000 to every grandchild for every Christmas, every birthday. These, These are going to become issues with Medicaid. Medicaid, during that look-back period, they want an explanation of any check or withdrawal over $500, any transaction over $500. And giving $1,000 to your grandchild is a gift. And that's a no-no. That's not okay. So the average cost of a nursing home is about $11,000, $12,000 a month? Yeah. Yeah, I would say roughly. So you're either going to be, if a loved one needs a nursing home, you're either going to be in the category of private pay or a year or two spend down, that's private pay. So private pay long-term, if you're wealthy, year or two, like say middle-class, upper middle-class, year or two, private pay, or you're right at that medical assistance on or below the poverty level. Correct? Am I missing you? Yes, you're correct. Yes, I think I mentioned this in the first podcast, and I don't want to be too repetitive, but this financial advisor that I used to work with would tell people, if you have $10,000, you're okay, because you're going to put it in a burial and qualify for Medicaid. Right. If you have $10 million, you're okay. You can basically self-insure, and you will be able to pay for your care for the rest of your life. It's everybody in between. It's all the middle. It's the people with two hundred to 400000 mm-hmm. We've seen people with even five hundred to 700000 Nursing home is one hundred and twenty to one hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year. So you do the math, three years, and you've just wiped out your five hundred thousand dollars. And so that's what scares people. People do even with the money who they think they're a little. We're wiping out the five hundred thousand if that's your share of the cost. The spouse right. gets right their cut. Right. right, and people think they number one. Nobody wants to plan to go to a nursing home. They just don't Mm -hmm. think about it, especially like five years in advance. And so they might be in that middle income bracket with a few hundred thousand and they're giving gifts to kids and all that. It's even worth it to mention meeting with a financial planner or an elder law attorney or somebody like us to, to say what the rules are so they know in advance. I mean, Attorneys can help them with tax planning yeah. so they can make gifts that are tax deductible, but make gifts that won't affect them five years from now right. or put it into something that won't affect them, a trust or something that won't affect them five years from now. Yeah. And as we go along on these podcasts, we're going to be talking about the differences between skilled nursing, assisted living, care continuum facilities. We'll be talking more about the financial aspects. We'll talk a lot about in-home care and Everything available in in in-home care now. My goodness, there's so many services to enable someone to age in place at home. We don't want this podcast to scare anybody thinking that nursing home is inevitable, but should, such as Ann and Joe's situation, should it come to that, these are things we need to start thinking about. And Carol, you wanted to finish up the podcast today? Yes. For anybody who knows me, they know I'm a big sports fan. So Bill Lyons was a sports writer for the Philadelphia Inquirer for many, many years. He was legendary. So in 2016, he revealed that he had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. I'm going to try and do this without getting emotional. (laughs) See, but anyway, um, no, this is actually funny. So he had revealed to his fans, he had retired from the Inquirer, but he wrote and revealed that he had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's and he called it Al. He called it his enemy was Al. So he wrote a series of articles over two or three years talking about his progression. His initial article, I think he wrote, This is a quote from his first article. Al is an insidious and relentless little bastard, a gutless coward who won't come out and fight. Instead, he lies in ambush in my brain. 
You want me to finish that? For no, you? and <laughs> I know. I don't even want to get too excited. And the only way I know I can put a face on him is to look in the mirror. So, what do you want to do? The man in the white lab coat asked. I should very much like to kick Al's ass. I said. <laughs> oh, that's perfect. You're sweet. And that is sweet. Bill Lyons was amazing. Well, that wraps up episode two of Senior Care Above and Beyond. We are so happy that you joined us today. Have a great one. Thank you for spending time with us today. We hope you come back to hear our next episode on Senior Care Above and Beyond. And remember, if you're an aging person or a caregiver of an aging person, we are here to support you. Simply visit our website, at scpandgsp.com. Click contact us to get in touch. Hope you have a fantastic day.